Hey, welcome to the Gentle Rebel podcast, where we talk about navigating life's harsher edges with a spirit of compassionate creativity. I'm Andy Mort. I'm a songwriter and creativity coach, and I love exploring the power of gentleness in creating conditions for meaningful change from the inside out. In this episode, I want to explore a topic that we looked at in the Haven recently alongside our theme of belonging, which is the idea that everything is borrowed. I love talking about this. I love thinking about this. We had a really fascinating discussion around this concept and it was lovely to hear some different perspectives, stories and ways of seeing belonging from this angle, the angle of ownership and possession. You know, how does this, um, the idea of control and entitlement fit with belonging, things belonging to us, us belonging to things, uh, people as belongings, cherished and valuable uh, objects, belongings, that kind of thing, how we hold the world around us, our lives, our goals, our relationships. Do we own this stuff? Do we try to possess this stuff? What does it mean to give it back? Do parts of life own us, our desires, our interests, our pursuits? Are there certain things that hold on to us, that possess us? You know, we talk about being possessed by things or prepossessed by things. You know, what does that mean? And how do we nurture a healthy relationship with life and the world around us so that we are able to let go and hand it on when we're done. That, that sounds a bit heavier than it than I meant it to, um, but hopefully you get the meaning. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting into this stuff um, and I, I hope it will provide you with some helpful things to think about and to explore um, as you sort of reflect on some of these ideas. I guess my vision would be for you to to feel lighter and like you don't have to be uh, trying to control everything all of the time. You know, we live in a time where things feel out of control and beyond our influence in many, many respects. And this itself can take possession of our most important resources, our energy, our care and concern, our time and so on. So I hope that we can leave this uh, in a better and lighter position in relation to what matters most to us um, and what we can um, impact, what we want to impact, what we want to choose to give those personal resources to. Um, And so, yeah, I'm going to be drawing on uh, ideas from um, uh, a few books as I go. Uh, The most recent one that I actually felt a nudge to go back and reread this morning. I went and and reread the whole thing. Uh, it's only a short book, um, but yeah, I thought, oh, yeah, this feels kind of relevant. So it, Austin Kleon's uh, Steal Like an Artist, I read it many years ago. I think it was about 10 years ago when it came out. Um, and yeah, so it was really interesting to go back and, and see how how the ideas in it have influenced me over that time, um, kind of under the under the surface a lot of the time as well. I was like, oh, that's where that idea came from. Um, and there's still a number of things in it that are really um, interesting to think about, really relevant um, as we uh, kind of go about life today. So I'm going to drop a few quotes from that in as we go. Um, I wonder what you think of that word, you know, steal, steal like an artist. Obviously, it's a, a provocative word um, used in the title designed to kind of pique reader interest and to sell books. But uh, it's an interesting one that I think, we again, we'll reflect on as we go. You know, what's the difference between uh, things like stealing, borrowing, owning, holding, using, collaborating, sharing, contributing, mixing, plagiarizing, and so on. 
Um, and while it's a, a book primarily aimed at people, I guess, wanting to create things or build a life around their uh, creative interests and projects and, and whatnot, I'm going to aim to kind of extrapolate the ideas out to other aspects of life as well so that it's relevant in uh, in more than just uh, creative pursuits. One of the things that inspired me to explore this topic uh, when we looked at it in the Haven was the links between kind of gentleness as rebellion and our relationship with with stuff, with ownership, with possession, uh, with holding on to things. Um, when I was an undertaker, I heard this phrase, you can't take it with you many times through the years uh, in a variety of contexts, even used to kind of justify many decisions that seemed at odds with one another. Different people would use it in different ways. You know, oh, you can't take it with you, so you might as well spend it or you can't take it with you. So you you might as well sort of uh, steward it in a way that is going to benefit other people, whatever it might be. But however it was used, it always gave me pause for thought. You know, I, th- I think it's a leveler in many ways when it comes to holding our lives in the context of um, certainly a a one-person show when we think of it through this sort of individualistic lens. No matter what we do, how much we earn, the number of things we might accumulate through a lifetime and so on, it's not coming with us when we're done, when we die. It's one of the reasons I found the job uh, such a really such a powerful source of inspiration, not necessarily uh, actively, creatively, but as a reminder of how equal we are at the very basic status of being. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've achieved or not. We all end up in the same state. Again, I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to be a downer here. I realize it's not necessarily the thing you wanted to be reminded of as you, you're doing whatever it is you're doing as you listen to the, as you listen to this. But I want this to be uh, the context on which we build a sense of, uh, I guess, awakeness and aliveness and excitement about life. I want this to be hope-filled and positive um, and to kind of hone in on the important things, the meaningful things, the stuff that actually makes us come alive. And to take that phrase, you can't take it with you, and to flip it, you know, what are we leaving behind? What are we passing on? When we check out of hotel life, (laughs) what are they going to find in our room? Maybe that's a terrible analogy. I'm not going to dwell on that analogy. Uh, But yeah, another thing we talked about in our Haven session was was how we treat things that we borrow or rent in comparison with things we own. You know, is there a difference in the way that we uh, think about that? You know, hold those things. Are we aware of any difference? Maybe we've got a kind of slightly different attitude towards things. Um, And this was a really, really interesting thing to explore like everybody has sort of different ways of thinking about this stuff do things feel different when you own or borrow them maybe things you borrow feel more interesting interesting and exciting stuff you own feels familiar and old or maybe borrowing things feels kind of alien and clunky and unfamiliar and actually you'd rather feel like the thing is yours and you're able to mold it in the way that you want and it feels like almost a, a part of you there's no right or wrong way to think about this stuff, but it's just interesting to think about it, to be aware of our preferences and our feelings in relation to belongings, to ownership, to borrowing, to possession, to our kind of relationship with the world around us. Have you ever borrowed or rented something that made you think, why have they thought it was okay to give that to me in this state? What does that feel like? Maybe you felt kind of 
offended at the fact that the lender uh, didn't respect you enough to give you something at a standard that you would kind of expect or at least hope for. Or perhaps you feel safe and free knowing that, ah, you know, even if I have a a bit of a clumsy moment with this, which I tend to do, um, it seems like they'd probably be okay with that. Um, And as long as I don't completely ruin it, they're not expecting it to be returned in a pristine state. That's, That's kind of reassuring. That feels safe in some ways. Might feel different if we're borrowing or renting as well. If the price is low, we might think, "Wow, what, what did I expect for the mo- for the money that I spent on this?" Um, and if the price is higher, then so too are the expectations. But maybe the fear of breaking and staining, scarring, ruining, whatever, that is also higher as well. The cost of doing that will be higher. And then there's what goes on during the period of use. You rent something that is rough around the edges and you need help with it. Maybe something's like, I, I can't get this to work or something's a little bit broken or whatever. So you call the lender and they sort the problem out right away. They're like, okay, yeah, yeah, we'll get that. We'll get that fixed. How does that impact your relationship with the thing? How does it affect the way that you, uh, that you give it back, that you want to, like the state that you want to give it back in? And on the flip side, maybe you call for help and they just fob you off. They say, no, it's your fault. They blame you for the issue. Tell you to sort it yourself. Um, maybe they, there, there have been times uh, certainly where they're too, someone is too quick to know uh, where you need to take something in order to get it fixed. As if, okay, you, you never fix it. Um, they provide a shoddy solution. Um, expect you to to get it sorted yourself. How does that impact your relationship with it? I've had situations like these, you know, I've borrowed and rented things that I've been like, well, that's a bit sort of rough and ready around the edges, only to discover actually it's just very well loved. It's cared for. It's been maintained over a long period of time. It's been very well looked after. Um, And the, the kind of wear and tear that appears to be there on the surface. It's just a matter of age. Um, maybe there's an analogy to be drawn for people as well here. Um, and I've also borrowed and rented things that the lender just appears to have no regard for other than, you know, using it as a way to make money, essentially, and to do so with as little um, uh, expense to them as possible. How we treat things around us is often influenced by how we feel treated. It's like that old adage that hurt people hurt people. When it feels like people don't care, it suddenly makes caring feel like a much more futile endeavour. And when we see the care and concern that other people have, maybe for us, uh, for the thing that they are uh, entrusting to us, it can give us fresh eyes and an energy to care about things, about those things, about other people, about other things as well. We can use our experiences to shape the world that we want to create as we lend ourselves, lend our things, our resources to other people. But maybe we have experiences on the other end of this equation that left us felt feeling kind of let down, feeling like we couldn't trust people. Maybe you've lent something, given a part of yourself to someone and they returned it in a state that made you think, what on earth have you done to this? Who in their right mind would think it's okay to give this back in the way that they have? 
it might be a a personality thing here. I wonder if some people, especially those who maybe score lower on conscientiousness, don't even register that there's anything wrong with returning something like in a certain way. And there's also a lot of unspoken assumptions that we might make when it comes to the expectations for stuff. We we often, I guess, see things in the way that we see it. We have our expectations. Think why why on earth would you do it any other way? Um, you know, I always clean the holiday home before leaving. I make a point of leaving it in a better state than when I find it. Versus uh, someone might say, oh, well, there's a, I've paid a cleaning charge. You know, they don't expect people to clean before they go. Um, let's not make the end of the holiday feel really bleak and stressful. Um, I guess it, it might be a bit like the idea of love languages as well. You know, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. The, the, the supposed golden rule, which I always find really fascinating. It's like... Uh, it doesn't work all the time, does it? <laughs> Unfortunately, we need to communicate our expectations. Never assume that just because we uh, would do something in a particular way to, or we would want people to do something in a particular way to us, that that's what another person wants us to do to them. Um, and that works on many levels in, in different contexts. Um, unless we provide expectations, communicate boundaries, we might be playing with fire when it comes to our sanity, especially when it comes to connecting, engaging with people on this level, like lending stuff to them. What do they, what do they expect? What, how, how am I going to get this back at the end of this period? Um, oh, and you can't take it with you. When it comes to <laughs> hotels and holiday lets, I think people have different approaches to this idea as well. You know, you can't take it with you, but only if it's screwed to the wall. And even then, if you brought a tool kit with you like unless it expressly communicates that you can't take the shelves the cupboards the tv with you then make yourself at home what's yours is ours no what's ours is yours <laughs> uh right how do we get here um i think this might be one of those episodes i hope you don't mind a little bit of meandering around this subject um i'm not sure what the crux of this subject is but hopefully we'll stay on course in a general sense and maybe deviate a little bit, but we'll, we'll be circling around the core ideas as we go. Right. I have a Sega master system written down now, which I think is my way of telling myself to mention a story from when I was a kid. Honestly, not entirely sure how this came about. Um, don't know if, do you remember, did you ever have a Sega master system? If you're of a certain age, um, it was the console. I think it was the one before the mega drive. Um, and we were we were lent one by our hairdresser when I was a kid. Uh, as far as I'm aware, we didn't ask to borrow it. I mean, I didn't ask to borrow it. I didn't know that she she had it. Um, <laughs> I have no idea how it happened. Uh, we didn't really have that kind of relationship with the hairdresser as far as I was aware um, either. It just kind of came back with us in a bag one time after we all got a haircut. Um, actually, maybe it had like stolen jewels concealed in it or something. And thought that actually probably makes more sense than the hairdresser just sort of lending us a master system. I, I don't know. It was a long time ago. Um, we're talking, dare I say, <laughs> 30 years ago. Um, but it was it was an incredible few few weeks. I'm not sure exactly the length of time that we had it for, but it was a really memorable uh, little season. You know, we weren't 
uh, able to afford stuff like we never had like a, a games console or anything like that so having the opportunity to to play video games in our own home was a an absolute luxury it was a joy um i like when i was it was the, it was the kind of thing that dreams were made of um until that point i'd spent many hours reading the argos catalog there was they had games consoles in the in the argos catalog i was just like I just sit there wishing one day I could maybe earn enough money for something as cool as that. Um, I won't explain what the Argos catalog or Argos is for the benefit of non-UK based listeners. Um, I don't imagine it's a global brand, but if you're interested, I don't know what it's comparable to elsewhere, but you just look it up online. I'm sure if you search for Argos catalog or something, it will, it will come up. Um, but yeah, as I say, I'm not sure how long we had this for. Felt like a long time. Um, especially for me as a kid, it was, it was long enough for me to, to wonder whether in, in actual fact, our hairdresser might not want it back. I, I was like, oh, I'm sure she's probably bought a mega drive by now. Um, and then we can just have this and this is, this is ours. Um, and that's a, that's a weird thing. When you borrow something long enough to forget that it's not yours, you get sort of used to having it around. You're like, ah, oh, yeah, they probably don't want it, but how long would you need to borrow something for it to have officially um, changed hands? Like as an object for it to, to feel more like it's yours than it's the other person's. You know, if you were to like put it in the middle of the room and both call it from different sides of the room, it would come to you because it's like, oh no, I, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure I'm yours. Um, but on this occasion, no, soon enough, Parents said, right, uh, hairdresser needs it back in a couple of couple of days, few days. Uh, so that then the urgency, there's a real sense of urgency to complete Sonic the Hedgehog. That increased. Things got very serious. Um, and, you know, I was I was kind of then focused and clear on my objective to make the most of this time that I had left in this in this dream period. Uh, so, right, drop everything else. All my time and energy is going into um, this, uh, like finishing off Dr. Robotnik once and for all, the end of this, going to do this. Um, when I think about the, the focus that I managed to, to muster, then it really makes me think about the way um, we live our lives in general. You know, what, what happens when we come to see life as the thing we're borrowing and we have to give back at a certain time? You know, we might be told that the the big hairdresser in the sky wants it back in a few days' time. What what difference might that make to us? Um, I mean, for me, it was like I completed Sonic. Um, I think with with a day or so to spare, uh, it was brilliant. Like none of my schoolwork got done, as far as I'm aware. Um, but you know, <laughs> look at me now. Uh, so yeah, if everything feels borrowed, we might care a little more with the perspective that comes from knowing that one day we need to give it back. What if life, what if time, our experiences here on earth right now are all borrowed things? We talk about that, don't we? We're living on borrowed time. Obviously, it's, it's what we'd say when somebody has news of maybe, maybe news from the big hairdresser in the sky that actually, you know, you've, you've had news of a diagnosis or a prognosis. And then we think of that as living on borrowed time. But what if we're all, I mean, we are all living in borrowed time. What difference does that attitude make? 
Gee, sorry, we're getting heavy again. Um, I'm still <laughs> only officially in the introduction part of my notes here. Um, so uh, let's jump to creativity and borrowing. That's the final thing I wanted to talk about to set up this topic before we loop back around and dive a little deeper into the uh, different things I've, I've already touched on. Um, so when it comes to creativity and art, there's no such thing as a, a truly unique or original idea. You know, we've talked about that before, I think. Um, and we are, as Austin Cleon puts it provocatively, stealing. He says in the book, how does an artist look at the world? First, you figure out what's worth stealing. Then you move on to the next thing. That's about, that's about all there is to it. As I said earlier, steal is obviously a rather loaded word. It's very provocative word. I don't know if you might hear it and think, oh, no. Um, and I'm not sure it's the correct word either. Is it really what we're talking about uh, in this context? You know, if you give credit, for example, or if everybody knows you're doing it, is that stealing? Um, if you're pretending like this thing is yours, then yes, that is that is stealing. And that's probably different. But talking about ideas or things that are just moving through our hands, it's going to be different as a result of it being in our hands, but it's not ours. Our relationship with stealing this stuff is built on the fact that we can't take it with us, not I want what they have. In a sense, stealing deprives ownership of something to the person who has uh, a right to possess it. And what does it mean to possess an idea? There, there are obviously all kinds of directions we could go with that and stories of intellectual property being taken or ideas being sort of uh, siphoned out of the hands of someone else and then exploited in different ways. But that's not what Cleon is talking about here. In fact, he quite handily distinguishes between good theft and bad theft. Um, so he says that good theft is is honouring, it's studying, it's diversifying. So stealing from many, it's crediting, it's transforming and remixing. Whereas bad theft is degrading, it's skimming, stealing from one, plagiarizing and ripping off. So it's kind of exploiting, it's, it's using um, a particular thing and passing it off as your own. It's taking what someone else has done and saying, this is what I, this is mine. Um, we probably all know people who are good at stealing <laughs> in that way. Um, a lot of people are, are good at stealing, but not necessarily at um, at letting go. They they control, they demand recognition. They build their own maybe creative practices and products standing on the shoulders of those who came before, quite happy, happy to take the ideas, to build on those ideas. But then they're like, they believe their own BS. They get stuck and stifled by scarcity and urgency, unable to grow and expand. Think, believing that, actually, no, this was my idea. I came up with this idea in a vacuum all on my own. And suddenly the flow of ideas and the inspiration and influence that they benefited from isn't so desirable when it comes to other people kind of benefiting from and, and being inspired by their own kind of the way that they've um, expressed what it is that has been inspired in them. So they seek to control aspects of it. And this is a real danger for all of us. And it's an understandable uh, feeling of, of, I don't know, jealousy or envy, uh, a feeling of being left behind, a feeling of being 
sort of missing out and all of that sort of stuff especially when we've been going for a while we start to move from uh, maybe a more progressive position to a more conservative position or like the thing that we're doing becomes more mainstream you know what we might have been doing that was maybe a radical way of seeing the world at one point becomes more well known and accepted and mainstream and we become part of the established order um, highlighted by the fact that new people, a new generation of people is coming along and they're subverting what it was that we did that was subversive in itself. And they're building on that. They're stealing, they're remixing what we created and they're doing it in a way that's like, oh, I don't, I don't like that. Um, it's not supposed to be like that. It's terrible. That's not real music. That's not proper art. Uh, and then suddenly we, we sound like our parents. And as we'll explore, holding everything like we are borrowing and like we are borrowed is a key part of fighting this um, inevitability, really. It starts when we acknowledge and accept that we are part of a story. We didn't come up with anything in a vacuum. We don't have completely original and unique ideas. We are building in partnership with those who came before and those who come next. They couldn't take it with them but we got to carry it a little further. We can't take it with us, but we can let the next lot take it a little further. Austin Cleon writes, if we're free from the burden of trying to be completely original, we can stop trying to make something out of nothing. We can embrace influence instead of running away from it. It's the same with trying to be completely the same, the desire to fit in, to be accepted, to be included. We often get caught on that side of the coin. As well, we seek answers, secret solutions, things that help us to be the same as others, to emulate the success of others. But if we're free from the burden of trying to be completely uh, right, to be perfect, to be to to fit in in that sense, we can stop trying to diminish ourselves on the altar of fashion and fad, and we can embrace who we are instead of running away from it. It's about finding ourselves somewhere in the middle. We are borrowing and we are borrowed. We can't take it with us, but we can carry it a little further before willingly and happily passing it on. It reminds me of that old proverb, a society grows great when old men plant trees in whose shade they know they will never sit. We live life knowing that not only do we give it back, but we pass it on. There is someone else coming to stay in the holiday home after we leave. Do we resent that or do we embrace it and want to make it as good as possible to hand it on acts of kindness gentleness and compassion towards those we will never meet or are we consumed by envy by jealousy by resentment and bitterness about the fact that actually i'm not going to be able to see that and i don't want to make it nice for them Okay, you'll be happy to know that the introduction is now officially finished. <laughs> We're into part one. Um, this might be like one of those old philosophy books where the, you know, the introduction is longer than the main text. It's like this hundreds of pages of introduction and then about four pages of the main text and then a, a sort of, I don't know, conclusion that tells you what you've just read. Uh, I'll probably finish the episode here, actually, to be fair, and just make the whole thing an introduction. Would, would that mean the introduction of the introduction is the introduction and the rest of the introduction would be more defined as the body of the work? Oh, screw it. I, I, I don't want to find out. I'm just going to carry on because I do have notes to carry on with. So uh, let's get cracking with part one. 
in the book Active Hope, uh, Joanne Macy and Chris Johnston say, when we identify with something larger than ourselves, whether that be our family, a circle of friends, a team or a community, that becomes part of who we are. There is so much more to us than just a separate self. Our connected self is based on recognising that we are part of many larger circles. It's from our connected selves that much of what people most value in life emerges, including love, friendship, loyalty, trust, relationship, belonging, purpose, gratitude, spirituality, mutual aid and meaning. I find this idea of our connected self really interesting. Um, It's something that in many ways we've lost touch with in our modern world or our modern world doesn't kind of create conditions to make it simple or easy for connected self to really flourish and thrive. Our connected self isn't just us as an individual connecting with other individuals, you know, coming together as individuals like connecting on that sort of surface level. It's actually who we are within the whole. It's how we're shaped by a collective and how we shape the collective. It's far more, it's, it's kind of that, that idea that um, the, the whole is much more than the sum of its parts. The ecosystem, you know, the, the parts of an ecosystem are uh, influenced by the ecosystem itself. You couldn't just take one thing out of the ecosystem without affecting the entire thing and without affecting the thing that you've removed from the ecosystem. It needs the, it needs the, the kind of culture of the ecosystem in order to actually maintain its structural integrity as it is. This makes me think of story, which is a word that is used uh, a lot these days. Uh, I think maybe, I don't know if it's, maybe I'm just sort of swimming in different waters, but uh, it was certainly about five or six years ago, I, I saw it absolutely everywhere. Everyone was talking about the importance of story. In the world of, I guess, individualistic culture, we're taught to see ourselves as the protagonist in our own story. Like in marketing, you're taught to see the, the client as the hero um, and you're the, the sort of supporting, you, you, you play that whatever it is, the, the sage, the supporting role. Um, but it's all about putting this, this one figure, this protagonist at the centre of it and creating this hero's journey. Um, but as I touched on earlier, I think I'm far more interested in thinking of story as something more than about one individual, one hero. That just, just doesn't do it for me. A lot of the time, you know, when you, you read a story that, that has one person at the centre of it, it just, just doesn't interest me. Um, the story didn't start with us. It doesn't stop with us. We're simply borrowing the pen and writing a few chapters for a few years before we pass it on and let someone else take over. Or within the context of the culture, we're just doing that on a grander scale. Um Earlier this week, as I record this, a co-write story that was started two years ago in The Haven has been rekindled in the, in the forum. Uh, it was started by Tula after a chat that we had about, um, we were talking about like kids' adventure stories. Um, and she, she kicked off a, a famous, fi- I guess a bit of fan fiction, <laughs> famous five fan fiction, um, or fan, famous five inspired fan fiction. Um, that anyone was welcome to contribute to if they wanted. Um, I love these kind of creative collaborations. It's, it's always fun to see the the minds, the creative little playfulness, uh, the weird, the wonderful roots that a story takes as we just sort of spark off one another. Different people like infuse the story and it's like, oh, that's like that. It's a story that I guess we all own, but also that owns our 
part writing it you know there's flow there's characters there's places there's motifs that people you know pick up and put down it's not just everyone writes a different story as they pick up the pen there are new questions to ask about how a character might grow and respond and feel in different situations that we put 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 them in um and this is this is like life you know we're all borrowing from one another's stories we're all playing different roles within those stories and really no one is a hero or a villain we are all just nuanced gray weird and wonderful characters just rocking up in different places um we're all the underlying characters in a broader and deeper story if we want to see life as a story but do we see our collective story our connected self as belonging within the story or do we see the story as belonging to us is there a difference between those two positions i wonder if when we feel a sense of belonging to the story we feel invested we feel empowered we feel curious whereas when we see the story as belonging to us we feel more entitled slightly less committed ready to drop it if we don't like where it's going ready to throw the pen at someone else and walk away say all right uh, you do it <laughs> um we think the story belongs to us therefore people we don't like don't belong to the story but we've got to find a way to understand the people that people belong because they're here people we belong because we're here this is the the core of things like um i don't know without <laughs> without going too off piste democracy you know the messy story of of human conflict done to the unsatisfactory satisfaction of all people an acknowledgement and embrace of the gray nuance and contradictory mess of humankind not a promise to transcend that stuff the commitment to find a way to work within that stuff there are not many collective arenas where we feel like it's worth doing the hard thing and working towards better outcomes when we see the world only in terms of villains and heroes whether we're in that position or not, it might feel hopeless and futile to see the grey, the nuance and the messy contradictions of a world that requires patience, perseverance and gentleness in order to reach more meaningful places together alongside people who we might not get along with. We are losing our ability to engage with people who think differently to us. Or if we never had that ability, we're not doing anything to grow those abilities as we become more connected and aware of the many differences between people when we try to own and possess the story we become entitled to the story and less tolerant of one another's flaws and mistakes even though it's always those things that actually make the best stories anyway we hold tightly to possession and ownership of ideas, narratives and interpretations. We pick these things up. We tether our sense of belonging to them. We see ourselves and one another as the things we should be free to pick up, borrow, try out, give back and use. We hold one another to impossible standards, often celebrating when we own another person in the sense of humiliating them. We use it to, to say that I really owned them making them look stupid, belittling someone, shaming someone, calling them out in front of other people. We dehumanise the potential collateral damage that might need to occur in order to reach a better world, the things and people that might need to be sacrificed along the way, rather than doing the firm back, soft front thing of gentleness, demonstrating real strength of character, having an empathic conversation, seeking some kind of connection, seeking to connect at the level of humanity, in that 
connected self, not at the level of ideas and beliefs. I know this is an easy thing to say, a lot harder to do. And there are probably people you're thinking they don't deserve that level of respect. But it always comes back to the point we thought about earlier. Everything is connected. When we lose the human, we lose the ability to create better outcomes and paths forwards. But when we see the human and they feel seen and heard as humans, they will often hold their weapon with less intent to harm. Weapons like words, ideas, opinions, judgments, criticisms, often strategies that we use to deal with unwanted feelings and unmet needs. They are ways of coping. They are ways of demanding to be seen. The best approach that we have at our disposal to make sense of the sight of inner pain and our relationship with things going on in the world around us that cause us fear, uncertainty, a feeling of disconnection, a feeling that we don't belong, a feeling that we are overlooked and unimportant. They don't always represent the truth of our being. They don't speak of who we actually are. They just speak from a sight, from the sight of our pain, from the sight of an unmet need. Macy and Johnston write, rather than viewing ourselves as a fixed thing with characteristics that can't be changed, we can think of ourselves as a flow of becoming. The static view of self is similar to a picture hanging on a wall, something that is set in a particular way and that resists transformation. Whenever we have thoughts like, I'm not the sort of person who... We're painting a similarly static picture of ourselves. An alternative view is to think of each moment as similar to a frame in a movie. If something isn't in the frame right now, that doesn't mean it won't be later. This perspective invites a greater sense of possibility. I really like that. Does that image resonate for you? Um, Do you make decisions based on a static or that kind of dynamic view of self, that sense of, well, it's not there right now, but who knows, it might be later. This flow of becoming is a a beautiful thing to invite into our understanding of who we are and how we hold other people as well. To change, I'm not the sort of person who does that, to, yeah, I could be the sort of person that tries that. (laughs) When we tether what we do to who we are in this way, we restrict and limit ourselves. We restrict and limit one another. We hold people within boxes that actually nobody belongs in. We often hold other people, don't we, to the expectations that we have of uh, people like that. We box them in. We might allow ourselves to be held by the labels and identities that we fall into or are placed into by other people as well. There's a really subtle yet significant difference in our relationship with these things, with labels, with identities. You know, they can be really great tools for self-awareness, for building a, a sense of understanding and connection but they can also become obstacles to those things if we allow them to paint us into fixed views of ourselves if we allow them to define um, and to prescribe what we are uh, capable of what we desire all of that stuff if we look to that to tell us um, oh no p- people like me don't do that people like me do that whatever that's when we kind of run into trouble this is about how we are held. How do we, how do other people hold us? You know, this idea of what it means to be us. The expectations they have of us. How do those expectations influence what we choose to do? Do we play the part of our character in the stories of other people? Is our part in the story kind of defined by what people kind of write us as or put us as? 
not wanting to rock the boat or change the script too much. Maybe it's a personal thing that people come to expect us as an individual, you know, people who know us think, oh yeah, that, that's, that's what, that's what Andy says or thinks or, or does. I, I can predict exactly what he's going to do in that situation. I could, whatever. Or maybe it's a broader thing where people expect people like us to think, to say, to do particular things. And we sort of conform to stereotypes in that way. How do these expectations hold us? How do we hold these expectations? And then if we look inwards, what about our personal feelings, our needs, our desires? Are we able to hold them? Are they able to live? Are we able to express them? Are we able to explore them without fearing what might happen? To do that in healthy ways? Or do they hold us? Do they feel forbidden in some way? Do they feel improper? things that we shouldn't reveal about ourselves. Maybe they're incorrect feelings, or maybe there are correct feelings. The things that go through the, no, that's, that's acceptable. That's a, that's a correct feeling, a correct need, a correct desire if we want to fit in. So we learn to embrace these at the expense of our most authentic needs, desires, feelings, all that sort of stuff. Or maybe we try and find ways to, to funnel those more authentic things into the more acceptable things. Austin Cleon says, don't worry about unity from piece to piece. What unifies all your work is the fact that you made it. I often talk about the non-linearity of growth and time, you know, how change occurs in spirals, cycles and seasons rather than on a kind of straight line continuum. That's what I love about this quote around unity. We're taught to look from the present moment and decide whether things fit together. This is the worst possible position to view that stuff from. We can't possibly know. Uh, Steve Jobs famously said, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. We let go of important things because they don't fit with what we think life is supposed to be, don't we? I know many people, for example, for whom music was massively important. They just stopped playing because it didn't fit with uh, what they felt they were supposed to do or with with their kind of growing up and getting a real job or whatever. Um, I talk about it a lot, but it's our emphasis and obsession with making everything productive or in service of something more than itself that so often disconnects and fragments us from the inside. We lose parts of ourselves. They're left to grow weeds, get rotten like old wet wood and become almost impossible to access. And so it's just a, you know, I always think it's just a matter of time before the music will be searched for again by those people who have let it go. Because it's like that matters to you. I know how much that matters to you. And you're sort of telling yourself this story about the fact that, no, I've got to move on from that. Like, it's like, what? <laughs> Why? Um, but when we leave our longings in that way, it impacts the whole of our life. We lose the sparkle in our eye, the bounce in our step, the joy of getting out of bed in the morning. Likewise, when we pick up those longings and hold them somewhere as options in our life, it can have a massive knock-on effect in other areas of life. You know, we might not even need to spend much time or energy on that thing. It might even just be like, I've got the guitar over there in the corner. It can be picked up if I choose. It's, it's an option. It's there. It's, it's allowed to be in the open making our longings real and tangible options, that might be enough. That might be all we need to get that sparkle back in our eye. 
or we might suddenly find ourselves back with that thing that we were told didn't fit with the life we needed to live or told ourselves no there's no place for that and suddenly that thing is at the front and center of life we find ourselves whoa i didn't realize this is like this is everything and and it's found a way to uh, to really become prominent to really become a priority connecting dots is often a desire to control you know do we need to connect the dots we often think yeah you've got to connect the dots there's dots connect them <laughs> that's what dots are for uh, you know we might notice patterns and links as we look back but if we force it before we uh, create the dots themselves we end up with really forced contrived and ill-fitting lives that don't belong to us at all there is no perfect label to describe your life anyone's life language is always imperfectly representing our wild dottiness especially if we allow our longings to carry us you know there are obviously labels that we can use to prescribe a life uh, but if you look for those you'll end up disconnected from yourself if you if you say okay that's a label that's the label that i want to use that then defines the choices that i make then you become alienated from who you actually are um, Austin Cleon says, uh, if you have two or three real passions, not sure what that means, um, don't feel like you have to pick and choose between them. Don't discard. Keep all your passions in your life. This is something I learned from the playwright Stephen Tomlinson. Tomlinson suggests that if you love different things, you just keep spending time with them. Let them talk to each other. Something will begin to happen. The thing is, you can cut off a couple of passions and only focus on one, but after a while, you'll start to feel phantom limb pain. Um, I think this is really important. I mean, again, there's, there's baggage with the word passion. It can be a bit confusing, confusing to think about, uh, to, to hold that. And I, I, I kind of like the, the idea of there are different things that we're drawn towards. There are different things that we feel a sense of connection to. Um, and believing that, no, I've got to just focus on one. Maybe that's the same sort of thing that they're talking about there. Have you ever borrowed something only to realize that you hadn't used it when the lender wanted it back? This is like similar to the master system, except I was using the master system. I just hadn't completed Sonic. Um, but I went through a phase as well of borrowing a lot of books from people. You know, I'd go and have conversations with people. We'd, we'd end up talking about ideas and it's like, oh, I've got, I've got a book you should borrow. You should read this book. I thought, yeah, great. All the intention to do so. But invariably, I'd never actually get round to reading them because I, I had too many of them. Um, but then suddenly, when the lender asks for for uh, for a book back, it's like ah oh, ah. Oh. There's a massive moment of urgency and regret. Like I haven't had time to read it. I, I need to. Re I really wanted to read that. Um, and kind of, I, I guess we we sometimes tend to move through life in this way, jumping between states of inertia and urgency. And I don't know if it's inertia or whether it's just a priority thing of I was reading other books, but a lot of the time I think it's I'll read I'll read this book before that book. Um, but we we tend to kind of put off doing what we'd love to do until tomorrow and then until tomorrow, until tomorrow. And then when we're confronted with something that reminds us that actually you're gonna need to give this back, we're like, ah! we meet it with a proper urgency or regret. We kind of we throw ourselves completely into it. We we act with like, okay, I'm going to put loads of pots of coffee on and stay up all night and, you know, do an all nighter and get this done. Or we regret and just lament the fact that, ah, oh, I've ruined my life. <laughs> um, 
And if life is borrowed and we can't take it with us, what do we want to make sure we use before we have to give it back? Take this moment to uh, maybe in non-urgency to assess, okay, maybe there's inertia going on around this area. Which joys, which passions, which hobbies, which relationships, which itches do we want to make time to explore before the big librarian in the sky comes and asks for it back? Speaking of skies, I was inspired to find a video of a murmuration of starlings after reading this passage from Active Hope. Um, Something very interesting occurs when a group of jazz musicians improvise together. A number of separate individuals, all making their own decisions, act together as a whole. As the music flows, any of the musicians can take the solo spot, that leading role gliding seamlessly between the players. Who decides when the piano or trumpet player should come forward? It isn't just the person playing that instrument, for the others have already stepped back just a little to create an opening. Two levels of thinking are happening at the same time here. Choices are made from moment to moment, both by the group as a whole and by the individuals within it. Connected consciousness is a type of consciousness. You know, we are more, as I said earlier, than the sum of our parts. You know, I've played music in that kind of ensemble where there are no words, there's no active communication happening, but it happens, it ebbs, it flows, it goes where it needs to go. The openings made by accident, by collective agreement in conjunction, conjunction with the feel and the sound, it just, it's inexplicable. You can't put into words how these things happen. And that's why it just reminded me of a starling murmuration. I don't know why starlings murmurate, uh, but it has a very similar appearance. No director, no specific leader, just a collective dance understood by everyone and no one. And unless you're directly underneath it getting pooped on, it's truly beautiful. It's a truly magical thing. And I'll read this, uh, this poem that's in, in, bo- in the book, uh, In Active Hope as well, which I think kind of uh, encapsulates a lot of this stuff. When you act on behalf of something greater than yourself, you begin to feel it acting through you with a power that is greater than your own. This is grace. Today, as we take risks for the sake of something greater than our separate individual lives, we are feeling graced by other beings and by earth itself. Those with whom and on whose behalf we act give us strength and eloquence and staying power we didn't know we had. We just need to practice knowing that and remembering that we are sustained by each other in the web of life. Our true power comes as a gift like grace because in truth it is sustained by others. If we practice drawing on the wisdom and beauty and strengths of our fellow humans and our fellow species, we can go into any situation and trust that the courage and intelligence required will be supplied. I want to finish this episode by thinking about what we can do, maybe, to embrace life more as a borrowed endeavour. In No Ordinary Day, Deborah Ellis writes, Nobody really owns anything. We give back our bodies at the end of our lives. We own our thoughts, but everything else is just borrowed. We use it for a while, then pass it on. Everything. We borrow the sun that shines on us today from the people on the other side of the world, while they borrow the moon from us. Then we give it back. We can't keep the sun, no matter how afraid we are of the dark. This whole idea is obviously a metaphor. Uh, It's a way of thinking about life and our relationship with it. 
we get to choose what to do with it. We may or may not be held accountable for those choices, but whatever happens, we don't give it back in the same state that we found it. Life is borrowed and it's a collection of borrowings. We borrow every day. We apply what we see, what we hear, we add, we adapt all the time. Austin Cleon writes, you are in fact a mashup of what you choose to let into your life. You are the sum of your influences. The German writer Goethe said, we are shaped and fashioned by what we love. So in fact, we are borrowed mashups. <laughs> I, I kind of like that. I like that quote. I think we are more than the sum of our influences. As we've said before, we are more than just a, uh, those things stacked together. We're so much more than that. We're the way that those things infuse through us, through our character, through our temperament, through our personality, through all of these experiences that we have. Um, we are so much more than simply the sum of our influences, but I know what that means. Um, at the beginning of uh, meditations, Marcus Aurelius spends time thanking people um, and, and kind of uh, acknowledging, recognizing people who have formed elements of his character. He gives gratitude to the sources of his virtues. Some innate characteristics that have been passed through genes, you know, the things that are passed on biologically. Some socially conditioned attitudes, things that were instilled in his formative years as he grew up, things he learned as he, uh, as he was formed socially, and then other things that he has actively chosen to be inspired and influenced by. This is something that we can all do, you know, recognizing uh, some of the strengths that we, we have, not as our own, not as things that, uh, you know, we created for ourselves, but as, as borrowed from other people. Even the resourcefulness to create our own strengths, the things that, that we have developed for ourselves, what gave rise to our ability to do that? What gave rise to our uh, ability to persevere in service of something that is important to us? Where do we get that from? Where do we learn this from? Who gave us this capacity? How do we end up with this? Jim Jarmusch, he's quoted by Austin Cleaner as well, uh, he said, uh, steal from anywhere that resonates with inspiration or fuels your imagination. Devour old films, new films, books, music, paintings, photographs, poems, dreams, random conversations, architecture, bridges, street signs, trees, clouds, bodies of water, light and shadows. Select only things to steal from that speak directly to your soul. If you do this, your work and theft will be authentic. Maybe it's not even just about selecting, it's about noticing what resonates with you. Notice what you notice. What is it about this particular thing that makes you sit up and notice? Have a swipe file to store these things. I like the, the fact that uh, Austin Cleon talks about this swipe file. It's, like, it's about swiping. It's about taking things. Uh, it's a, a kind of a, a synonym for stealing and sort of swiping. Um, but yeah, inspiration might arrive in an aha moment of connection. You know, oh, I'll have that. I'll make a note of that. Uh, but not all ideas are good and they aren't all ours uh, to build on as well. Like taking time to review, to, to go back and reflect on the swipe file and then being ruthless in letting go of the things that it's like, no, actually, that's, that's just clutter in my mind. Um, and this isn't just about creativity. It's about life, surrounding ourselves with reminders of people that we want to borrow from. Like a list of our, I don't know, 
library books, the things that we're borrowing, people we have borrowed from. Uh, Cleon writes again, I, I hang pictures of my favourite artists in my studio. They're like friendly ghosts. I can almost feel them pushing me forward as I'm hunched over my desk. The great thing about dead or remote masters is that they can't refuse you as an apprentice. You can learn whatever you want from them. They left their lesson plans in their work. The great thing is that when we have a spread of influences, when we have a range of people that we borrow from, we're never going to make a perfect copy of any single one. <laughs> any thing or any one of these people we're going to forge our own path we're going to find our own voice we discover this voice in the early stages through imitation and emulation you know this is where we start as children isn't it we talk because we're kind of wanting to communicate we're imitating what we hear other people do that's why you know growing up in a certain in a place where a certain language is spoken that child's going to speak that language. It's not like an innate thing that just suddenly comes pouring out. Um, And we imitate, we copy, we repeat. We begin this never-ending journey towards locating parts of ourselves to grow into ourselves. The intention isn't to be the other person or to pass ourselves off as them. We don't imitate a primary caregiver who's teaching, who's sort of speaking to us. We don't imitate their language because it's like, oh, I'm going to be them. I want to be them. I want people to think that I'm my mum or whatever. Um, you know, we borrow, we steal, we imitate in order to chip away at the process of becoming more of who we are every day. Hold lightly. Cleon also writes, don't just steal the style, steal the thinking behind the style. You don't want to look like your heroes. You want to see like your heroes. Now, this is one of those one of those quotes. It's like, oh, that's yeah. Oh, you don't want to look like your heroes. You want to see like your heroes. Really like that at first. And I was kind of reflecting on it. It's like, mm, I'm not, I'm not massively sure. I, like, I think yes, absolutely. But actually, we want to see like us. We want to be able to see how other people see, but we don't want to change our own vision to imitate the vision of another person. Otherwise, we'll forever be holding ourselves to a standard that, that actually isn't ours. Um, we want to be able to see through our own eyes. And maybe that's what it boils down to once we peel away the layers. Nice mixed metaphor there. Um, you know, see like your heroes because your heroes see through their own eyes. That's why we, how we want to see. That's how we want to see like our heroes because they see like them. We want to see like us. Do that through our own eyes, not theirs that makes sense is that just pedantic is that semantics i don't know um anyway brian eno is also quoted he says my interest in making music has been to create something that does not exist that i would like to listen to i wanted to hear music that had not yet happened by putting together things that suggested a new thing which did not yet exist how does this extend to the rest of your life to make a day that i would like to be involved in to create a relationship, a home, a family, a business, a hobby, a routine, a neighbourhood that has not yet happened, that I want to be part of, does not exist. I want to be part of this, putting together things that are there, but together, which do not yet exist. All these elements, bringing them together, the thing that is consistent, the thing, the unifying factor is the fact that I am there involved in creating this building on what is. You can't reject the principles, the history, the story. You can only build on it in order to uh, make something even more beautiful, something that is alive now, 
we get caught in ruts of the old, don't we? Looking back at how things were, being comfortable with how things are despite the inevitability of change. We don't prepare necessarily positively and proactively for how things could be. We just end up reacting to the change and often forcibly adapting to a less beautiful situation. That's where we are in so many aspects of our world today. The other side of this is the tendency we have to equate newness with betterness. There's no point in innovation if that innovation doesn't give us something that actually serves our deeper vision, our deeper values. It doesn't serve to make life and the world a more beautiful place for everyone here. Then newness is not betterness. The vision is informed by our answer to these questions. We can't take it with us. So how do we want our life to look when we give it back? Do we want to have used our body, our mind, our time, our energy right to the limit to have spent every ounce of what we've been given? Do we want to have used it to spread a certain vision, an idea to others that we feel just gnawing away, chipping away at our heart? Do we want to keep it sustainable for as long as we have to use it? We borrow the world, the space we take up, the moment we're in. How do we want to pass it? back? How do we want to pay it forward? How do we want to give this to what comes next? I'll leave you to reflect on those questions um, and to try and make sense of (laughs) of what I've said in this episode. I want to encourage you if you if you want to explore these kinds of things, these kinds of themes, these ideas, um, if this sort of I don't know, meandering way of approaching topics is is compelling to you, then the Haven is absolutely the place to do it. You know, we have these regular meetings that have been kind of uh, sharing some of the things that we've talked about in our Cotter meetings where we, we just kind of come together. We discuss topics like this one, uh, bring our own experiences, our own questions, our own um, uh, uh, sort of reflections on this stuff. You can come along, just sit quietly and listen. That's absolutely fine. Or you can get actively involved in conversations as well. It's a beautifully warm and friendly environment. And I'd absolutely love to welcome you into one of those uh, one of those sessions in the future. You can learn more about them at uh, the-haven.co. Uh, you'll find a link in the show notes as well. Um, and yeah, I, d- I just really encourage you to check it out uh, if this stuff resonates and you'd, you'd like to sort of, I guess, dive into it more slowly and uh, with other people and to share your own kind of thoughts on it and stuff like that. Like this is, I guess these episodes are almost a result of, uh, yeah, me opening that conversation and then making sense of it in my own way afterwards. Um, and also if you fancy a one-to-one coaching conversation, drop me a message. Just email andy at andymort.com. I use the uh, contact page on the website. Um, if, if this episode has sort of brought up anything for you that you'd, you'd like to maybe sort of work through or whatever then I'd be absolutely uh, open to that. It'd be great. Uh, all right. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope you've made some sense of it. Um, do share it on social media uh, with anyone that you think will kind of get something from it as well. Let me know what's resonated with you in this episode, either, again, on social media or through the website, comments, contact form, send me an email, whatever. Um, that'd be lovely. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, and until next time, remember that Even when it appears not to be, gentleness can always be an option. Take care. Bye-bye.